are you? Glad you could be with us. This is the Modern Podcast. I am Jimmy Davis. Welcome into the show. Our website is themoderatepodcast.com. My email address is host at themoderatepodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash themoderatepodcast. And of course, on Twitter, which is probably our most frequently used platform, our handle is at themodpodcast1. That is the number one, themodpodcast1. If you haven't already done it, please follow us there. Really appreciate it. So today, we're going to take a look at some different things. We're not going to go into the, into the news of the week, but instead we're going to talk about the subprime mortgage crisis and some of the causes of that. And I think it's a timely issue given where we're, we're, in, we're in an environment again where housing is now at an all-time high once again. We have recovered essentially from the um, from the subprime crisis where real estate prices dipped dramatically, especially in areas that were newly developed. Um, in a community I used to live in, um, housing prices were basically cut in half, you know, from the height of the market to the, to the low part of the market in just a matter of, you know, two or three years, homes lost half their value, literally half their value. So um, that obviously not just hit um, the communities hard and the people that were living in those homes hard, but it also hit the cities hard because they their pr- property tax was based on those amounts. And um, so in some cases, um, here in California anyway, you have a Prop 13 value. So you buy your house, let's say you buy it for $300,000. I know that's hard to imagine buying a house for $300,000 in California, but just bear with me. You buy it at $300,000 and Every year, there's a Prop 13 index that is capped at two percent. So, if an if the growth if the CPI is greater than two percent, then the increase in the assessed value is two percent. If it is less than two percent, then it goes up by that value only, and there's no catch up. So, if let's say in one year, how the assessed value only changes one and a half percent, they can't then increase it two and a half percent the next year to make up for that half percent they lost. Even if let's say. CPI the next year is 3%. So that has held um, assessed values down. And that was kind of the purpose of Prop 13 back in 1978. We talked about that um, a little bit on this show before. So then you have a Prop 8 value. So if your house price, if your the value of your house drops below your assessed value, so the market value is lower than your assessed value, you can petition to the county assessor to have your home revalued, reassessed. And so let's say you bought it at $300,000 and two years later, now because of the crisis, your house is only worth $200,000. You can petition to the assessor and then now your value will be based on $200,000. Now they keep track of what your Prop 13 value would have been as if that value never dropped. So they have the percentages that they apply to it. And so that becomes the ceiling. So let's say if you know your house, this, the recovery starts and now your house is worth $220,000. Now your assessed value is going to go up to $220,000. Now that's 10%, but it's still below the, the Prop 13 cap. Once your home catches up with that cap, then you're, then you're capped at what the Prop 13 value would have been. I know it's a little bit complicated, but 
it obviously in both cases favors the homeowner because you're basically get you get to be assessed on the lower of the market value or the prop 13 value of your home and then you're only assessed 1% on that value and that's that is that is the other piece of prop 13 is you cannot be assessed more than 1% of the assessed value so we saw a lot of that, and that's how that's how the cities got hit really, really hard. And that's going to be kind of a, a subject that we're going to talk about in another episode when we talk about the pension crisis that we've been seeing and why it's how it came to being the way it is. I'm going to just use California again as a case study because that's where I'm familiar with. And but it, but it can be applied to many other states that have similar types of um, retirement programs for public sector employees. So with the prime mortgage crisis, this isn't the first time that our nation has faced a crisis like this. Remember, there was the um, sub, the savings and loan crisis of the early 1990s, where thousands of savings and loan institutions um, failed. So we need to look back at a little bit at that because there are some similarities there between what happens with the SNLs and what happened with the subprime mortgage crisis. And both have to do with two factors. Number one, deregulation and then subsequent bailouts. So remember, in the savings and loan crisis, we ended up bailing out the saving, a lot of the savings and loans to the tune of $220 billion. And that's in 1990 dollars. That was done under George H.W. Bush. By comparison, TARP ended up costing $386 billion, and a lot of that money has been paid back. So you lost $220 billion in the savings and loan crisis at $1990, and you've lost about half of the $386 billion, so that puts you at about $190 billion or so of losses in 2010 dollars. So the savings and loan crisis cost a lot more money from the government's perspective, but yet it didn't cause as big of a recession. It did cause a recession, and there were other factors that were in there too. Remember, the Cold War came to an end, so defense uh, spending went way, way down, and that caused a lot of um, issues as well. So that contributed to a lot of savings and loan, uh, localized pieces of that, because a lot of people that worked in defense were laid off and they could no longer afford to pay their loans that they otherwise would have been able to pay. So that was a part of why the savings loan crisis happened, because it took 10 years from the regulations that started or the deregulation that started under Reagan to the time that the actual savings loan crisis happened. So why is that? Well, in the savings and loan crisis, Congress passed two laws in the early 1980s to deregulate the SNL industry. There was the Deposit Depository Institutions Deregulation and Monetary Control Act of 1980 and the Garn St. Germain Depository Institutions Act of 1982. This was done in response to the high levels of inflation and interest rates in the country at the time. So people just simply could not afford loans because, you know, you were lucky to get a single-digit um, rate loan at that time. 
but most loans were in the 12 to 15% range. That was not unheard of. That was actually for decent borrowers. And if you weren't a good borrower, your, your rates would even, your, your rates would be around where, where we see credit cards today. And so can you imagine paying a 20% interest rate on your home loan today? That, that, that'd be, there's nobody would be able to afford that. So the, so what they did was, because of those issues, because of those issues with high interest rates and high inflation, they wanted the SNLs to kind of quote unquote grow out of their problems. So what the, what these two laws did was it allowed savings and loans to um, offer a wider array of savings products to bring deposits in so that they can have more money to lend out, right? That was the whole purpose of a savings and loan. They bring their people deposit their money and they keep it there and you pay interest and you pay high enough interest rate to um, entice them to keep their money there because you don't want to run on the bank because you're, you're turning around and lending that money out, right? You have to have a certain amount of cushion, but that's basically the, the basic premise of a savings and loan. So you get, you, you basically, you, the bank borrows money from people by them making deposits and they, you pay a rate of return on it. And then they turn around and lend that money out at a higher interest rate with fees. And that's how they make their money. So they off, they started offering, um, things such as, uh, adjustable rate mortgages. That's where those were introduced. And remember adjustable rate mortgages were a big contributor to the subprime mortgage crisis of the mid 2000s, the mid to late 2000s. So that's when those were created. These were one, the first one was done under Jimmy Carter and the second one obviously was done under, um, under Ronald Reagan. Well then inflation started to curtail shortly thereafter that. Um, and what happened was they, the, the, okay. So they tried to end inflation by raising interest rates, right? So you had interest, you had, you had high inflation. So you raise interest rates to take money out of, out of the, out of the money supply, right? You, you, if you raise interest rates, the whole idea is to try to, lessen the amount of money that's available in the market to slow down inflation. So they rose interest rates in the late 70s. This led to a scenario in which increases in the short-term cost of funding were higher than the return on portfolios of mortgage loans, which is why they needed to be able to adjust the rates. That's why adjustable rate mortgages were so attractive because if interest rates were higher then the loans that they were giving out and they were get collecting, the banks were going to lose money. So they needed to have a ne- mechanism to be able to tie their lending to those rates of return or to the to to how the rates were changing on the on the Fed side. And of course, this also led to higher risk taking because as home prices as as money started to become available for be, through these SNLs. Um, home prices started to rise, and as home pros, prices rose, there was there that led to speculation. Does it that sound familiar? It should because that's what happened. So, um, you know, it, they took a, they they took advantage of this real estate boom. Um, 
So they were lending out far more money than was prudent and into ventures which um, many SNLs weren't, weren't even qualified to assess on with like commercial real estate, for example. There's a lot of real estate or commercial real estate that was impacted with this as well. But because the economy was good through the mid-80s, there wasn't a lot of issues. It wasn't until the early 90s when, like I said, the Cold War ended and people started to lose their job. And eventually, you get to the point where, um, and there was a bunch of fraud too. So there's a lot of fraud, predatory lending practices, things like that. Um, And you started to get these failures and it kind of started to cascade a little bit. And it all ties back though to that deregulation. So after that, in the 90s, you have these SNL failures, you have these regulations. So obviously you had to tighten up regulations, right? That was the answer at that point, theoretically. But that didn't happen, at least not to the extent that it should have. But what ended up happening was they wouldn't take on high-risk loans and they basically wouldn't lend to disadvantaged communities anymore. Banks would stop doing that. And because they just did, they couldn't afford to take on the risk. So you had these 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 issues where disadvantaged communities could not get loans. People in those communities could not get loans and if they did, they were mostly of the predatory nature. So then you bring about the the Housing and Community Development Act of 1992. This legislation established an affordable housing loan purchase mandate for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and that was a some that was a name. Those were two names we heard of big time once the mortgage tri- once the subprime mortgage crisis started to happen. The mandate was to be regulated by HUD. Initially, the 1992 red legislation required that 30% or more of Fannie's and Freddie's loan purchases be related to affordable housing or borrowers who were below normal lending standards. However, HUD was, giving the pow- was given the power to set future requirements and HUD soon increased the mandates. This encouraged subprime mor- mortgages. Now, but, so... This happened again in 1992, and the regulations started to creep up. So if you wanted to have HUD, or at least Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, back your mortgage, they had to they, the ones that they purchased, 30 or more percent, and actually that percentage got up to 55% at the height of the crisis. But they don't, there is some, there is some dispute as to whether that was some will say that was the reason for the subprime mortgage crisis. Others will say it's not a factor at all. And some will say, which is where I think it, where I think the argument is, at least did contribute some. Because there was two factors there. It was the direct lending that would happen that were for mortgages that were ultimately backed by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And there was pressure on the banks if they there was a lot of bank mergers going on in the late 1990s and in order for regulators to sign off on these um on these mergers they 
said that hey you have to be a good you have to be a good good citizen policy so one of the criteria for approval of a merger was good citizenship exhibited by lending to underserviced markets so they had to basically take on more risk in order to get their mergers approved so the even though the community reinvestment act didn't necessarily contribute directly to the subprime mortgage crisis it set the table for it to happen because these mergers allowed the practices to get around regulation because there wasn't as much competition in the market but in order to be merged they had to increase their lending to underserviced markets i.e higher risk so when you talk about predatory loans that's basically what you're talking about but the, the but you couldn't make predatory loans in that environment because that would not be considered being a quote unquote good citizen so here's an example well, the way they got around this and the, remember, the Community Reinvestment Act was actually passed in the late 70s, but is reinvigorated by the Clinton administration to basically encourage more investment in underserved communities to make sure that they were they had access to the capital market and to make sure that they had access to the loan market so that because the whole thing was they wanted to give everybody the American dream of owning a home. That was the that was the big tagline back in the 1990s. Everybody should be able to afford their and to be able to purchase their own home. That's the American dream, right? So again, the Clinton administration brags about the fact that they reinvigorated this. Uh, this this act over 95% of the community investment made in the 22 years of that law have been made in the six and a half years that I've been off in an, been, been in office. So the CRA became an important tool in Clinton's third way as an alternative to both laissez faire and government or government transfer payments to directly construct housing. But also it was the ratings and not the loans that were the main tool of altering banking practices. So poor rating prevented mergers. So community activist groups became an important part of the merger process because their support was crucial to most mergers and in return, the banks supported their organizations. So by 2000, banks gave $9.5 billion of support to activist groups and in return, these groups testified in favor of, selected, of, of select mergers. This is what created the merger of WAMU and Washington Mutual um, was one of the worst run banks among the largest and earliest banks to fall in the subprime, subprime crisis. Now, the, again, these mergers then allowed to have less competition in the marketplace and more concentration of the wealth if you're bigger 
you can take more risk because you have a deeper pocket. You have more capital to play with. So you can take more risks. And that's exactly what happened. In order to make sure that people could afford a home loan, they came up with all these different types of exotic lending terms, none of which were fixed from the savings and loan crisis, which was one of the root causes of that crisis. So you have lax lending practices, but you had less failures of subprime mortgages in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac compared to the private label um, mortgage-backed securities. The whole crisis was created on speculation, but it fueled, it kind of it kind of built on 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 itself, right? So first, you would have more money available to buy houses because you're 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 getting you're you're lessening your criteria for lending. Then, because there's more people available to buy homes, prices are going to go up because the demand is higher than the supply. So prices go up. Well, now it's saying, or now now banks go, wow, look at that. The prices are going up. We can give these loans out, even if we know they're not going to get paid back, because we know that the the price of that house is going to go up. So if we lend money to a person to buy a five hundred thousand dollar house and they only make twelve dollars an hour, that was always the classic example. That's okay. We can make him have, you know, it's interest only or even less than interest only, which again is another thing that will, that ties in with CalPERS, believe it or not. They'll pay less than interest only. They'll pay whatever they can afford to pay and we'll add it to the principal balance. But the principal balance will still remain lower than the value of that house. The value of that house is going to go high up faster than the interest that the, the, the amount of interest that's not being paid and added back into the principal. And when they can't, when it gets to the point where that principal raises the interest or raises their payments to a point where they can't afford it anymore or they can refinance because now they can refinance because the house is going to praise higher than it did when they bought it. So that was the that was the shell game, right? And it kept building on each other. And eventually, because you had these investment banks that would just buy up these mortgage-backed securities the risk was transferred to the investment banks. So the lenders had no risk in the game and the investment banks were expecting that, okay, these are maybe you know high-risk mortgages, but the assets that back them are more valuable than the risk of them not paying. That was the game, right? But it is still important to remember that Part of the mandate was, and always had been since the 90s, that everybody should be able to afford a home. So it wasn't just about the greed. That was a big part of it. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of money being made by lots of people. But there is also this social justice type of thought that we're empowering people own homes that never had that opportunity before 
And that makes me feel good. So I'm doing, I'm making a lot of money and I'm feeling good about myself because I'm giving the, the, uh, the dream of home ownership to people that otherwise wouldn't have it. That is the, that is the dual purpose of what we're doing here. And that all, that culture all began in the 1990s under Bill Clinton. So when we talk about George W. Bush being, you know, in the, in the regulations that the Bush administration had and, and all this corporate greed and all that stuff, it did pay, play a factor. And they overplayed their hand. They overleveraged themselves. And it reached, it in 2007, it finally reached its tipping point to where only, it's kind of like with, with, with car loans. We're seeing, a, we're seeing right now a subprime crisis in car loans for the same reason. They overleveraged themselves, and they just thought people were going to continually buy cars, continually buy cars, make the lending you know very very easy to do, and now all of a sudden, people can't afford to make their car payments anymore, and car sales have stopped. They've slowed down dramatically over the last few compared to what they've been over the last few years, and because that happened. They've overleveraged themselves. I think you're going to see some real problems with some of these financing companies with cars for the same exact reason. There comes a point where the market gets completely saturated and there's just not enough, there's no more people to buy houses anymore. You know, it, at some point that slowed down. And when that slowed down, that's when they got exposed. And all of a sudden now the prices start to peak and they're they're slowing down and they're not going up anymore. Not only did they go up, they had to go up fast. And they weren't going up as fast as they used to. And so they started trying to get out of these, these mortgages. And now all of a sudden they couldn't. And then it just, the house of cards came down. Because the value that they were anticipating no longer in the future was no longer there. And so their investments became essentially worthless. Now, along comes the federal government and TARP to ultimately bail out a lot of these banks, which I think is the problem. So because you've now had that happen, not once, but twice, you've had bailouts in the, in the SNL crisis and then the subprime mortgage crisis. So what's to stop people to start? What's going to stop people when they decide that we need to deregulate again because people are having trouble affording housing? Because that's where we're at right now. Housing is getting to the point where it's no longer affordable in a lot of places. And so you're going to have to get creative if you want people to be able to buy homes. Hopefully we learned our lessons from the last two times. What did George W. Bush say? There's an old saying in Tennessee. I'm sure it's in Texas too. Shoot, fool me once. Sh uh, shame on Shame on you. You just don't want to get fooled again. That's what he said. It's actually fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But I digress. Um, the bottom line is, is if I'm an investor and I know that if I make a risky investment in housing because it's for a quote unquote good cause and I'm going to get bailed out on the back end, what's going to stop me from taking those risks again? So is regulation the answer or is saying to those banks, hey, you make those loans and you don't get it paid back, that's on you, buddy. That's not on us. And if you go bankrupt and someone has to buy up those, those mortgages on, for pennies on, on the dollar and you guys lose your butt and you lose your investment, 
that's on you, not on us. Because it may hurt more initially, but it will stop anybody from taking those high risks again. I think you need to have disclosure for people that are going to invest in these banks that, hey, we have these types of lending. If you want to get in, you get in. But understand, you may lose your entire investment if we fail. And if these mortgages, so let's say I get a house loan for $300,000 again, and then it goes down, the the bank that I am lending from um, fails, they get, my mortgage gets bought up for pennies on the dollar. Now, my mortgage is only worth $200,000 instead of $300,000. That's what they bought it at. And now I'm only paying on $200,000. So the risk now is on the lender and not on the buyer if the lender fails. Sounds great in principle because then that would stop people from taking these risky investments, right? That's how you would regulate the market. By not regulating it, letting the market decide and just not bailing them out at the, at the back end. Because at the, at the end of the day, some people, yeah, they were able to re, reconfigure their mortgages and stuff because of lend, you know predatory lending and stuff like that. But ultimately, a lot of people still ended up paying the same amount that they had for their, their, their mortgage, even if the, the underlying asset was worth significantly less. They were upside down in their mortgage. If they then get to weigh in on some of that, if they get some of the reward for them taking that unwilling risk, they are going to rethink lending that money. And then you're going to be in the same boat you were where you're not going to have people lending to disadvantaged communities. They want to make sure that you have somebody that's backed by a solid asset that has solid income um, that is able to pay back that loan. That's the bottom line. You want to have a very low default rate. And then you're going to have a a big portion of the population not having access to the capital market again. If you want that, if you want that to be the case, don't pass it on to the, to the private sector, take it on from the public sector. That's government policy. And if the government wants to do that, then they can lend directly. I think. Do we want the, the government doing that? No, but do we also want them not, do we want them regulating the market? Because that's the only way to get around it. That's the only way you can have your cake and eat it too. You're not going to be able to say, hey, we're not going to bail you out. But also, we need you, we're requiring you to lend to these certain amount of people, these underserved communities, even though it's higher risk. And oh, by the way, you can't practice predatory lending practices by charging high interest rates and things like that. You have to give them the fair shake that you would give anybody else. In other words, you have to give them good rates, good lower rates, a fair appraisal, and even though they're a higher risk buyer. But then again, we're not going to bail you out. Well, that's why you bail them out because at the end of the day, part of the reason they're there is because you made them get there with your regulations. So you see how this is a vicious cycle? That's why there's really no solving this. And with the government involved in housing, the only way they are going to be able to really effectively regulate it is if they're directly involved with it and don't go through the don't go the regulation route and just sit back and, and relax. That's the reason we had the bailouts. It wasn't because they were too big to fail. It was because 
in at least part, the regulations that are placed on these lenders, even though there was deregulation on one end, but the deregulation was there because they wanted to influence a certain type of behavior. And that certain type of behavior is what ended up causing the crisis. But the government pushed them to do it. So why shouldn't the government then be responsible, at least in some part, for paying back that uh, those losses? Because part of part of the reason they had those losses in the first place is because of the government's regulations. See how it works. How, see how that there's really housing is such a complicated thing because on the one hand we want it to be something that everyone has access to. But home ownership is not a right. It is not a right. If you want to have affordable housing and have it in apartments and have projects like that, Section 8, things like that, that's fine. But let's not pretend that giving affordable housing to actually home ownership is the ultimate right that you have. So hopefully I explained that all that it made sense, but the bottom line is I would not be surprised in if 10 or 15 years we're sitting here having this conversation about the third time we've had to bail out the credit industry because of government overreach and deregulation with strings attached. That's the thing, deregulation with strings attached. Everyone wants to blame Wall Street and the greed and all that stuff. Yes, it was a factor. People got greedy. They got overzealous. But part of the reason they did that was because there was a government bailout probably waiting for them. Next time, we need to not do that. And we need to be upfront about it. we got to say, hey, you guys are starting to get a little bit crazy with your lending practices. And if that fails, pff, good luck to you. We're not going to, we don't care. We're not going to, we're not going to bail you out. You're going to have to figure out how you're going to cover those losses. And it may take you the rest of your life. So good luck to you. But then don't expect those same lenders then to lend to just anybody because it it makes them feel good. Because then why are they going to risk themselves for the benefit of the community when ultimately they're going to fail? And then maybe those people sit there with them work with, you know, they, they have their home scot-free. It's kind of like the, the whole thing with, with student loans. We want to just all of a sudden just forgive these student loans as if, I don't know, why would we do that? Why, why, why would we do that? Why, why don't we give, you know, why don't we bail out homeowners too and say that they don't know their mortgages anymore? Because at least there's an asset there that, that, that is attached to that. Those student loans have no security at all other than. The whole reason you get a student loan is because there's there, there's a thought that that degree is going to get you money, but not all degrees result, result in money. Some degrees are not or almost useless when they when they're gotten. Yet we want to forgive the lend the, the 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 people that lended that money. We want to forgive the loan just because it made them feel good. I don't get it. The whole reason you go into a student loan and give that loan to get that education, which will then unlock unlock additional income potential, which can then be used to pay back that loan. 
That's the point of a student loan, I believe. That's the investment that they're making. So, because there's, you know, that's just the first part of retro, that's basically retroactively making college free, right? That's a whole probably other discussion we can have. So thank you for joining me uh, this week on the Moderate Podcast. Again, remember to visit our website at themoderatepodcast.com. My email address is host at themoderatepodcast.com. Facebook and Twitter links are available on the website, but I'll give it to you here as well. Facebook.com slash themoderatepodcast. And we're on Twitter at themodpodcast1. Themodpodcast with the number one. So until next time, I am Jimmy Davis for the Moderate Podcast. And until next time, keep it real. Keep it real.